Today we're in our final week of the Shema series. So far we've looked at six key words in this really important ancient Jewish prayer, which is called the Shema. It's a prayer of allegiance in essence. If you were Jewish, you knew this from childhood. So faithful Jewish believers would recite this twice a day. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Listen, O Israel, listen, was the first word we looked at. It means that literally is the Shema. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Ross, today we're going to look at the sixth and the final word in this prayer. The word is strength. In Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, the word is me'ad. And so we're going to do just a good old-fashioned word study today. We're going to look at Hebrew. We're going to look at Greek. We're going to look at Aramaic. There's there's so much to say about this word me'ad. And really, the question is, what does it mean to love God that way? Yeah, first I want to set the stage with the historical context, and then I want to talk for a second to maybe people might be listening today to help them understand how this might speak to the, this their lives. It is a word study, but it does speak to life. And so the historical context, as we've been reminding our listeners throughout, is that Deuteronomy, where the Shema is found, is the final message of Moses to the people of Israel. They've come out of the land of Egypt. They've wandered through the wilderness. They're all set up on the doorstep of the promised land. And they're about to enter there. They're going to set up homes, set up a society, a whole community in this new land. And Moses wants to give them the information that they need, but also the motivation that they need for about how to live in this land and what it would look like for them to succeed there. And so his message in the Shema, in Deuteronomy in general, is that God should be everything to you, and He needs to impact every part of your life. And so to apply that, you know, to think about that before we get into the word study, listeners, if you're a Christian, or maybe you're not, you haven't made a commitment to follow Jesus yet, and you're still thinking about that, but either way, we want to paint a picture that this prayer, the Shema, is not just about being a religious person. Okay, it's not just about the so-called spiritual part of your life that you can kind of separate from the rest of your life. No, it's about your whole life, your whole person, your everything. And so when we're talking about this today, Brian, I want to ask our listeners to think about, does God impact every part of my life? Do I just go to church? Maybe I give God one hour a week? A lot of people who claim to be Christians habitually separate their spiritual life from the rest of life. And so they have relationships and emotions and finances and family and marriage. All those things are lived out separately from their relationship with God. And what the Shema is calling us to is what Moses is calling Israel to that applies to us is to a life that's greater, richer, that's kind of really fuller than all of that. Okay, so let's take a look at then what this means, Ross. You know, when you first read the words, love God with all your strength. Maybe some of our listeners are thinking, okay, you're, we're talking about physical. You know, we've talked about the heart, we've talked about the soul, and now he's now God is talking about, and by the way, Jesus is going to quote this too. And some people think that Jesus might have misquoted this, so we're going to get to that. But a lot of people say, okay, well, he's talking about your body then, your physical body. I'm going to love God with my physical body, with my strength, with my physical strength. But that's actually not what the word is about. The, the, the word in Hebrew is a word used to modify another word. So when combined with another word, it gives the idea of 
like muchness or or in our some of our translations it's the word very and we see this in a few places ross let's kind of unpack this for our listeners genesis 1 verse 31 the first chapter in the bible it says then god looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good yeah and the word very is this word that we're talking about ma'ad and so in the first five days of creation, every day God said it was good. The sun was good, the birds were good, all the stuff God made was good, all the rest. But not until the very sixth, the sixth day, the final day, when it was all done, then God said it was ma'od good. It was very good. It was much good. There was a lot of goodness there in what God had made. And that carries on, you know, two or three other times. Uh, in the story of Cain and Abel, for example, so this happening right after the creation. Cain and Abel were the were brothers who were sons of Adam and Eve, and they brought offerings to God in Genesis 4. It said, God did not accept Cain and his gift, and this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. And again, very is the word ma'at. He was much angry. There's a lot of anger, a ton of angry. And so that's the same word that Deuteronomy 6 uses to talk about strength. His anger was, I guess you could say, strong anger or a ton of it. So that's the idea so far. Yeah, and and then it shows up one more time. Okay, so Genesis 1, 31, very. Genesis 4, 5, very. And then Genesis 30, verse 43, it says, talking about Jacob, that he became very wealthy, ma'ad wealthy, with large flocks of sheep and goats, female and male servants, and many camels and donkeys. So there it is again. It's about. It's like the the strength of his wealth, right? So so the point is that this word in Deuteronomy 6, it doesn't mean strong physically, the, the way that maybe we would, Americans would read this and think about this. And so, so now as we move over into the New Testament, and Ross, maybe you can help our listeners with this, because the Old Testament, we're talking about Hebrew words in the original language, but it was translated, this this might be news for some people to hear, so maybe help us with this. It was translated, the Old Testament was translated into other languages also. So tell us a little bit about that before we sort of unpack uh, what we're going to read in, Mar- in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew when it comes to quoting the Shema. As Israel, the Jewish people, became a spread throughout the ancient world um, after the time of Alexander the Great, what happened was they began to speak other languages, and so native tongues, and so the Old Testament was translated. Now, the most famous translation of the Old Testament is into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, but there's other translations into Aramaic, which was the language um, that Jesus spoke. It was the vernacular language of Palestine. Uh, Hebrew had become more of an academic language or just a religious uh, language, and so people you know, in, in the Jewish world, spoke Aramaic by the, that time. And so the idea of this, uh, of this thought is that when you look at the words that the translators chose to convey ideas into another language, it tells you something about how people were thinking about the words of Hebrew. And so this word ma'od, ma'od was translated in different ways into Greek and into Aramaic. And so we look at the words that were chosen, it gives us some sense of, oh, this is how people were thinking about that word. This gives us more of an idea of what that word meant in the original Hebrew language. And so the Greek 
Greek-speaking scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, the Septuagint, when they got to Deuteronomy 6, when they came across this word ma'ad, they, they translated it with the Greek word for power. That's the word dunamis, and it's like related to the English word dynamite, right? So power, dynamic. Um, and the New Testament also uses that word, the same word dunamis, because the New Testament is written in Greek. And so it kind of helps us understand a little bit more about what that original Hebrew word meant. Okay, so let, let me summarize this for our for our listeners who probably didn't even re, didn't even realize that there's more than the Hebrew version of of the Old Testament. So there's also the Septuagint version, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. So you're saying, let's do a little word study. So you're saying they come across Deuteronomy six, the Greek translators of the Old Testament, and they 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 talk about it. I'm sure they debate it. I'm sure they really, what is this really getting at, ma'ad? And they said, let's use the word dunamis. And then when we're looking at the Greek New Testament, this word dunamis shows up again. And this is helpful for people. This is, this is a good way to study the Bible, by the way, is to look at a word that shows up in one place and then look at that word where it shows up in other places. And it helps you to understand the word. It helps you to understand the context of what that word is. And so this word dunamis famously shows up in Acts 1, verse 8. Ross, one of my favorite. I love this verse, Acts 1, 8. But you will receive, this is the resurrected Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, but you will receive power, dunamis, ma'ad in essence, right? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yeah, so that's the same word. Again, there's probably not a Greek word that, that conveys fully this idea of muchness, the way that the Hebrew would. So they said, what's the best way to convey that in another language? They picked the word power. And so that's the same word that would have been that the, that the Old Testament translators used to translate Deuteronomy 6.5. And so with, where the Hebrew Bible said, love the Lord with all your ma'ad, the translator said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your power. With all your strength comes across this with all your power. And by the way, I think it's interesting. I, I don't know. I don't know if how the disciples would have been hearing that from Acts 1.8, but but maybe they were maybe they were connecting it possibly to the Shema in a way. Maybe they were thinking about, huh, that's interesting. You'll receive power. If they're thinking about that in terms of loving God with all your power and the connection to the Holy Spirit here, that the Holy Spirit is the one that allows us, by the way, and I'm sure we'll finish with this, Ross, but the Holy Spirit is the one that allows us to, to do the Shema. The Holy Spirit is the one who allows us to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our ma'ad, and, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we'll come back to that. But first, let's, do, let's dive even a little bit deeper into language, because that was the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. But, but the Old Testament was also translated into Aramaic, right? The language that the Jewish people in Palestine spoke in Jesus' time, they spoke Aramaic. And so the old te- they would have been reading, some of them would be reading the Aramaic Old Testament, and this is probably Jesus' native language. A lot of people don't realize that. So, Ross, let's talk about this. How did, 
how did, if the Greeks use the word dunamis to translate muchness or strength the way we have it in our English Bibles, how did the Aramaic, tra- what word did the Aramaic translators use? Did, did they use essentially the same word, the word for power? Actually, they use a different word, a different concept that, that conveys another aspect of the Hebrew word strength. They use the word for wealth. And in Aramaic, that that's the word that comes across in the New Testament translations like the King James in, in earlier generations of New Testament translations, it comes across as the word mammon. And so you can see that in Matthew chapter 6. Now, some older people who read the King James a lot and understand what mammon is. Nobody else probably gets that. But in Matthew 6, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And originally, that word money was the word mammon, which, is, which, which was a direct connection to the Aramaic word for wealth. And so this is the word that the Aramaic translators used to convey ma'ad in Deuteronomy 6.5. In other words, in the Aramaic version, they would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your wealth, or all your means. Again, ma'ad means much or very, but because it intensifies the idea that it's attached to, and so that's why it was translated as strength, or as power, or as wealth, or means, because of this idea of intensity, this idea of muchness, comes across in Aramaic in terms of like, like this, the muchness that you have in the material world, and so it comes across as wealth. Okay, so now, I think now we can start to put all these concepts together, again, because speech, speakers of English, you know, for those of, I'm sure everyone who's listening to the podcast speak English, and so they're, th- they're saying, okay, but what does this mean? This is still confusing. So we're trying to connect this, this idea of very or muchness, ma'ad, from Hebrew with the idea of strength, which is what we have in our Bibles, in Deuteronomy 6, our English Bibles, the idea of power, which is what the Greek readers would have had in, in their Septuagint, with the idea of mammon or wealth that the Aramaic readers would have. And as, when you put all this together, you're, we're, we're talking really about, in essence, we're talking about giving your best, coming to God, loving God, with everything that empowers you. We're, we're talking about, I, I don't know, I think about baptism, I guess, Ross, the symbol of baptism. When, we, when we, someone comes to faith in Christ, we baptize them, we, we immerse them in the water, and it's like you're saying, I'm going all in. I'm going all in with Jesus, and I'm coming out. So now when we read Mark 12, 29 to 30, and this is where, this is where Jesus is going to quote the Shema, we're fine. I think it's appropriate that we end our series by talking about how Jesus used this, this idea of Shema in his answer to the most important question he could have ever answered. The, the, or the Pharisees came to him and said, what's the, of all the laws in the law book, of all the rules, what's the most important? Well, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds by quoting the Shema. But I want to, I want to read this Ross from Mark chapter 12, because again, now that we did a little bit of a word study, it might be helpful for our listeners to really understand this, because at first glance, it sounds like maybe, 
maybe Jesus is misquoting Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, but that's not what's happening at all. So the, the Pharisees said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied like this. Here it is. The most important is this. Listen, O Israel. This should sound familiar. Shema, O Israel. He's quoting the Shema. He's not quoting one of the, he's not giving them one of the Ten Commandments. He's giving them the Shema. The Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, check, with all your soul, check. But instead of saying all your strength, he says, with all your mind and all your strength. So now, Ross, we're even more confused because we've got this idea of muchness, strength. It's related to dunamis in Greek. It's related to mammon or wealth in Aramaic. But now Jesus even throws in another thing, and he's talking about mind. Help us understand this. It's kind of a little bit of a, a shock to see that. You go, wait a minute, is Jesus making something up? Is he misquoting Deuteronomy 6, 5? goes with, with four words instead of three. But I think it helps us understand, okay, that Jesus is authoritative in the way he quotes Scripture, that he is, because he's God, he is, in a sense, the author of all the Old Testament Scripture. And, and so remember, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, and he quoted the Old Testament Scripture, he says, but I say to you, and so then he expanded on the actual intent and the heart meaning of the Old Testament. And I think that's what he's doing here. So he has the authority to, to interpret or help us understand the fullness of the meaning of the Scripture. What he's doing is helping us think about just really how is it that we're going to follow God. And where Deuteronomy says, all your strength, Jesus understands that or he conveys that to us as saying, okay, that's going to include all your mind as well, all your strength as well. And so he's really expanding and giving us really ultimately the underlying heart of what the original scripture was meaning. He's saying, you know, don't stop with just, with just your heart, your soul, your, your strength. Involve your entire person in it, and it really emphasizes what we already looked at before. The heart includes the whole inner person, mind, will, and emotions. You know, and the soul includes everything you really are. It's your essential identity. And so, yeah, the, the mind, the idea of adding your mind to all of that is pretty extremely consistent, really, with the whole idea, only it underscores and kind of puts it in bold kind of what Jesus is trying to say, what the original Moses was trying to say is, is really, it's all, it's everything. It's uh, everything you are, everything that you think and do and want and all the rest. Yeah, maybe for a modern listener, a good way to think of this is it's not about just checking a box on Sundays. You know, you, you go to church, you check a box, and you say, okay, I'm, I'm done with God for another week. Now I can go on with the rest of my life. I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I can be my own person. I can follow my own heart for the next six days. And then maybe, you know, if the, if the football games aren't that interesting on Sunday, I'll come back again to church for 60 or 90 minutes. I'll have a cup of coffee. I'll listen to a message. I'll say a good message, pastor, and I'll go back and I'll, and I'll just keep doing that. It's, it's, to me, that's the modern equivalent of what Jesus is referring to here. And, e and even what Moses was talking about when he talked about, the, when he gave the Shema to the people of Israel in the first place. So whether you're a Jewish person living thousands of years ago or an American living today, it's so easy to compartmentalize your faith. It's so easy to give God part of you, to say, I'm going to give you this part of me, and, but not to go all in with your faith. But the Shema, this 
this pledge of allegiance to God essentially is saying, I'm giving you everything. I'm, gi- I'm, I'm going all in. I'm giving every part of me to you. I'm giving you not just my heart. I'm giving you not just my, my soul. I'm giving you my mind, my wealth, my energy, my muchness, my ma'ad. I'm giving you everything. And, and then it just makes sense then, Ross, as we go back to Mark 12, that when, so when, and we haven't really addressed this yet, but I think it's a really important for us to address this in the Shema series, because again, the Pharisees are asking Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He, he gives them the Shema. He just reminds them of something they've already heard. They've already, they, they recite it twice a day since they were a kid, but it, he's, he's bringing new meaning to the idea of the Shema, love the Lord your God with all. And the way, I think the way he really emphasizes the new meaning is what he says right after he quotes the Shema. They asked him for the greatest commandment. He gave him two commandments. He said the first is, is love God with everything. And the second, he says, is equally important. And then he quotes a more obscure reference. Everyone would have known the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. But this other reference is from Leviticus, and he quotes a second commandment. He says this, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So, so Ross, help us to understand this, because Jesus doesn't just stop at where I think some modern religious people would stop, is that my relationship with God is just about me and God. Jesus says, nope, I'm going to eternally connect the Shema, the, your relationship with God. I'm going to eternally connect it to your relationship with people. It's so interesting because really Leviticus, this this quote, love your neighbor as yourself, is from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And like you said, it is kind of obscure. And even in the context of Leviticus 19, it's just kind of a it's thrown in, in a sense, with a bunch of other a bunch of other law and regulation. So let's look at it in that context. I think it'd be helpful if we go and look at it in light of Leviticus 19 and see what's going on there. Because the book of Leviticus was given a generation earlier than Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy, as they're ready to go into the land, Leviticus, when they came out of the land of Egypt. And so 40 years before, and it, and it really has instructions that God gave Moses for all the ritual life of Israel, for the priests, for the detailed laws and regulations and rituals of the temple and the offering system of of animal sacrifices and all the rest. And so when you read Leviticus, it, it's so detailed and so like a list of things. It seems like God's all about rules and laws, but that would really miss the deeper point. And Leviticus 19 draws this out because it shows us what all those regulations that God gave his people, what they're really all about. And so here's Leviticus 19. Let me just give you a recap uh, leading up to verse 18, where Jesus says, love your, love your neighbor as yourself, where he quotes that from. So verse 11 of 19 says, do not steal. It says, don't deceive or cheat one another. Now, I'm not reading it. I'm paraphrasing it. I'm just giving you the gist. Deuteronomy 19, verse 13 says, don't defraud or rob your neighbor, and don't make hired workers wait to receive their pay. Verse 15, don't twist justice in legal matters by being partial to the rich and powerful. Verse 16, what you see here so far, these are all very human. Verse 16, don't spread slanderous gossip. And don't stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at risk. Verse 17, don't nurse hatred for any of your relatives. And then we get to verse 18, where 
where Moses said, or God tells Moses, love your neighbor as yourself. And so what we see here is this whole, it's embedded in all of these practical ways to demonstrate love. And Leviticus 19 shows us that when you give your everything to God, when you're loving the Lord with all your heart and your soul and your strength, then that spills over, that's expressed in relationships. And that's probably why Jesus picked this one verse and and drew it in, because it is the very natural implication of the vertical relationship goes together with, it's like you said, eternally connected with these horizontal relationships as well. Yeah, and it's not like Jesus just came up with this. This was this was part of it. I, I, anytime we read the New Testament, we have to read it in, in light of the Old Testament and vice versa. And I think we, anytime we read Jesus's words, it's like, it's like he's the great teacher. He's you know he's the one who, I mean he's God. So he he knows this connection, but somehow the people missed the connection. So it's it what he's doing when he's interpreting this when he's answering the Pharisees' question is he's saying, you, you know you guys are experts of the law and you missed this. You thought it was about about a relationship with God alone. You thought that somehow there could be this, you could love God and then not love people. But he's saying these things have always been connected because God is love. And so the more you draw close to God and know him, not just intellectually, but really know him, the more that it's his heart for people is going to spill over to you. And we see that concept, I mean, Ross, over and over in the New Testament. I mean, not just the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Like I think of Romans 12, where he says that Paul says at the beginning, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind you will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship God. So so Paul's talking about your relationship with God at the beginning of the chapter. And, and as you read further down in Romans 12, you see the implication of that. So in verse 9, he says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection, and take delight in honoring each other. He says, be happy with those, verse 15, be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. So we see this. I mean, this is just one example, Ross. We could give examples from 1 John, from, I mean... All the writings we can give examples from Jesus's teaching and teachings in the gospel that that there's this connection, and I want I want Christians to really hear this that that loving God, being in a relationship with God, listening to God, everything we've been talking about in this series, listening to God, making Him Lord of your life, should spill over on your relationships. It should make you one of the best people to be around. It should make you not. Not like what you see with some longtime Christians today on social media or in the news or whatever. It shouldn't make you more obnoxious and rude and hateful and spiteful. It should be the opposite. It should make you the most, the most loving, caring, genuine, honoring person. Now that I'm not saying that that means you shouldn't be a truth teller. I don't want people to misunderstand me here. Because Jesus was the perfect example of this, of of loving. He had this, obviously, a perfect relationship with God the Father, and it spilled over in his into his life with 
people that he interacted with, but he still was able to speak truth to people, but he was able to do it in a way that was just, that really embodied the love of God. Yeah, that's so true. And it's really important to understand that. Um, And that's really where we want to take the Shema. But here's the question, Brian, we've raised this question, I think, throughout this series, and that is, okay, here's this standard that Jesus gives these two great commandments. They're reflecting from the Shema, reflecting Leviticus. So for the person who's never come to faith, we want to maybe talk about what this what this implies about a relationship with God. But first, I think the Christian person, we're going like, wait a sec, I know my own heart. I've tried to do this. I, I just don't, I can't get there. I just don't know how to make this real in my life. I don't want to fake it. But how do I change? How do I be transformed? And I think that's a question that really we should probably try to answer. And I think it goes back to, you mentioned earlier, something about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the dunamis, the power behind living this kind of life that we read in Romans 12 and all over the place. The power behind this is not your willpower. You know, in, when, when Moses said this in Deuteronomy 6 to the people, love the Lord your God with all your heart, Shema, Shema, I could imagine just people for generations reciting this twice a day and then being so frustrated with themselves because they couldn't live it out. They couldn't really love the Lord your God with all their, with all their power, with all their dunamis, because, Ross, there's a real, there's a qualitative difference between a follower of God in the Old Testament and a follower of God in the New Testament. A follower of God in the New Testament has, the Bible says, Ephesians 1.13, it says that when you place your faith in Christ, so we're talking to Christians right now, when you place your faith in Christ, that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. You know, Jesus said in in, in uh, Acts 1.8 that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He was talking about the, the Holy Spirit giving you the words to say, to be a witness, but there's something even more fundamental that happens e- even, even before that. There's some, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in you and empowers you from the inside out to be obedient to God's commandments, the first of which is the Shema. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. Like The most important commandment is the Shema. And, the, and then the, the one that goes with it, which is to love your neighbor. How can you love God in your neighbor? You can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So, you know, the more connected you are to the vine, the more connected you are to the Holy Spirit in your, in your habits and your disciplines and things like that as a follower of Jesus, the more the fruit of the Spirit comes out in your life. And Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is is relational stuff, love, joy, peace, you know, a lot of that stuff is just relational stuff. The one who gives you power to listen and really obey, like we said in week one, that's what listen means. It means really obey. The one who gives you that power is the Holy Spirit. Let me just compare for a sec. You mentioned the idea that in the past, in the Old Testament period, the Holy Spirit did not belong to every Christian, every believer in God. The Holy Spirit was sent sporadically at certain times to empower somebody for a particular task, and then the Holy Spirit departed. But now since Jesus came and he sent the Holy Spirit on all of his people as a permanent possession. But I, I think that what, what that means is a couple things that we wanna, I want to explore. And number one is we have this assurance that the Holy Spirit lives in us as Christ followers, and he's not going to leave. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't leave like when I sin or I blow it or I decide to go my own way instead of God's way. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm out of here." You know, he'll go he'll take the back seat and let me do what I want to do until I realize I have to surrender to his power and his influence in my life. But he doesn't got to leave. So, the other thing though is that as I rely on the Holy Spirit moment by moment throughout the day, the uh, the Bible talks about that as like taking steps, like walk by the Spirit. It's like every single step. Then I'm saying, okay, how am I going to let the Spirit lead me now? But there's also this thing that you mentioned about spending time with God and spending time in the in the Word of God and in prayer. And those disciplines have a way of then creating the pathway, creating um, the environment in which the Holy Spirit is more active, and I have I'm more surrendered to the Holy Spirit's work in my life. And so it's not just like, oh, you know, suddenly I just decide, boom, I'm going to be different. But I can be different as I cultivate that relationship with the Holy Spirit, my relationship with Jesus, and stay connected to the vine day in, day out. I can be different, and it will show up over time. Um, it's a, it's a, sometimes it's gradual, and sometimes it's a lifetime transformation. But that's the result of the Holy Spirit being at work in us. I think that's important for us to understand. Yeah, and for our listeners, if you want to learn more about those spiritual spiritual disciplines and how, you know what what are those disciplines and how can I apply those to my life, and we have a whole series on that. It's called Breakthrough Disciplines. In fact, we're, right now we're going through that series on our over on our men's podcast. So we'll make sure to put a link down below to those resources, and we encourage you to check that out. But Ross, I think it's appropriate for us to finish this, you know, the Shema series by speaking to people who aren't yet followers of Jesus. Okay, so we just said, where does the power come from if you are a follower of Jesus? But but what about the person who's been listening to this? this you know, they, maybe they found the podcast, they're just interested in this, or they, they think Hebrew, you know, Hebrew, uh, word study is really interesting to them. Maybe they've just been gaining a lot of information here. What's the message to them? What's the message to someone who isn't yet a follower of Jesus? Because really, I mean, is it true that I'm saying, Ross, that those people can't really love God and those people can't really love their neighbors? If if we're saying that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to really be obedient to the Shema, then it, I don't know, it might sound a little bit of offensive to a person who feels like they're a pretty good moral person, and we're saying that they, they can't actually accomplish this in their own power and strength. I think that's a fair question. And I'd say that, yeah, no, they can't accomplish it as much as they'd like to. Now, there's a certain level of morality that every person is capable of, uh, regardless of the Holy Spirit or not, because because we're human, we're made in the image of God. And so we have some sense of being able to be a better person, whatever, but that has a limit. There's a ceiling on that. But what I really want um, our listeners to understand is that it's not about moralism. It's not about just being a better person. It's not about just keeping these rules, or these commandments. Um, it's not just a self-improvement project or doing all the right things so that God is on my side, or that God accepts me, or He'll reward me, or somehow. So really what we're saying, it when we talk about the Holy Spirit and we're talking about the work of Jesus in salvation, is it's really a supernatural thing. And so what Jesus said about loving your neighbor, He exemplified that when He went to the cross, because He willingly gave His life for us on the cross 
because we're broken. Every single one of us is broken in different ways and different degrees, but it's fundamental to every human being. And so we all struggle to obey these basic commandments. We all struggle to, lo- to, to put a whole heart into something you know, that matters beyond ourselves. And so on our own, we can't ultimately live the Shema, but Jesus gave himself as our neighbor. He, he died to pay for our sins, for all the ways that we fall short. He died to bridge the gap between us and this God who is holy, who's perfect. And so what we're saying is that the way to know God, the way to start this life, is not by trying to be a better person, but it's by trusting in Jesus to be right with God, trusting in the work that he did that I couldn't do. He gave up his life on the cross to pay for my sins, and he lived a perfect holy life. He obeyed God fully and completely where I can't. And so when I trust in him, not only does he forgive my sins, past, present, future, but he also begins to change a person from the inside out. He changes your heart. He changes your soul. And I think he gives us his ma'ad, where we don't have much. He gives us his muchness, where, where what we, the best I have is not very muchness. Mm. And the result is then we can love God, and then we can love our neighbor, and it's the result of God's work within us. If you want to learn more about that, you know, if you're listening and you want to explore becoming a follower of Jesus, you want to explore becoming a Christian, we encourage you to check out our Pursuit series, pursuegod.org forward slash go, especially pay attention to lesson six in that series. That's where we talk about how to become a Christian. In fact, we encourage you to go through that series with with a Christian friend, find a Christian friend um, and say, hey, would you walk through this with me? Would you help me to process some of these questions and some of these concepts? That's what those Pursue God resources are about. And if you want to go through this entire Shema series, now that we're done today, this was week number six in the series, you can find the entire series to go through it with your family, with a small group, or with a mentor at PursueGod.org forward slash Shema, and we, we encourage you to do that. And also, we want to encourage you to join us next week, because next week we're going to go a little bit of a different direction. We're going to talk, Ross, I'm excited about this one. We're going to talk about systematic theology. What in the world is that all about? If you're interested to know, tune in next week.